Chapter 9 When I was 14 or 15, I was an odious little snob, but no worse than other boys of my own age and class. I suppose there is no place in the world where snobbery is quite so ever-present, or where it is cultivated in such refined and subtle forms as in an English public school. Here, at least one cannot say that English education fails to do its job. You forget your Latin and Greek within a few months of leaving school. I studied Greek for eight or ten years, and now at thirty-three I cannot even repeat the Greek alphabet. But your snobbishness, unless you persistently root it out like the bindweed it is, sticks by you till your grave. At school I was in a difficult position, because I was amongst boys who, for the most part, were much richer than myself. I only went to an expensive public school because I happened to win a scholarship. This is the common experience of boys of the lower, upper middle class, the sons of clergymen and Anglo-Indian officials, etc. And the effects it had on me were probably the usual ones. On the one hand, it made me cling tighter than ever to my gentility. And on the other hand, it filled me with resentment against the boys whose parents were richer than mine, and it took care to let me know it. I despised anyone who was not describable as a gentleman. But I also hated the hoggishly rich, especially those who had grown rich too recently. The correct and elegant thing, I felt, was to be of gentle birth, but to have no money. This is part of the credo of the lower upper middle class. It has a romantic, Jacobite-in-exile feeling about it, which is very comforting. But those years, during and just after the war, were a queer time to be at school, for England was near a revolution than she'd been since or had been for a century earlier. Throughout almost the whole nation there was running a wave of revolutionary feeling, which has since been reversed and forgotten, but which has left various deposits of sediment behind. Essentially, though of course one could not then see it in perspective, it was a revolt of youth against age, resulting directly from the war. In the war, the young had been sacrificed and the old had behaved in a way which, even at this distance of time, is horrible to contemplate. They had been sternly patriotic in safe places, while their sons went down like swathes of hay before the German machine guns. Moreover, the war had been conducted mainly by old men, and had been conducted with supreme incompetence. By 1918, everyone under 40 was in a bad temper with his elders, and the mood of anti-militarianism which followed naturally upon the fighting was extended into a general revolt against orthodoxy and authority. At that time, there was amongst the young a curious cult of hatred of old men. The dominance of old men was held to be responsible for every evil known to humanity, and every accepted institution from Scott's novels to the House of Lords was derided, merely because 
old men were in favour of it. For several years it was all the fashion to be a bolshie, as people then called it. England was full of half-baked antinomian opinions, pacifism, internationalism, humanitarianism, of all kinds, feminism, free love, divorce reform, atheism, birth control. Things like these were getting a better hearing than they would get in normal times. And, of course, the revolutionary mood extended to those who had been too young to fight, even to public schoolboys. At that time, we all thought of ourselves as enlightened creatures of a new age, casting off the orthodoxy that had been forced upon us by these detested old men. We retained basically the snobbish outlook of our class. We took it for granted that we should continue to draw our dividends or tumble into soft jobs. But also it seemed natural to us to be again the government. We derided the OTC, the Christian religion, and perhaps even compulsory games and the royal family. And we did not realise that we were merely taking part in a worldwide gesture of distaste for war. Two incidents stick in my mind as examples of the queer revolutionary feeling of that time. One day, the master, who taught us English, set us a kind of general knowledge paper of which one of the questions was, Whom do you consider the ten greatest men now living? Of sixteen boys in the class, our average age was about seventeen. Fifteen included Lenin in their list. This was at a snobbish, expensive public school, and the date was 1920, when the horrors of the Russian Revolution were still fresh in everyone's mind. Also, there were the so-called peace celebrations in 1919. Our elders had decided for us that we should celebrate peace in the traditional manner, by whooping over the fallen foe. We were to march into the schoolyard carrying torches and sing jingo songs of the type of Rule Britannia. The boys, to their honour, I think, guide the whole proceedings and sang blasphemous and seditious words to the tunes provided. I doubt whether things would happen in quite that manner now. Certainly the public schoolboys that I meet nowadays, even the intelligent ones, are much more right-wing in their opinions than I and my contemporaries were 15 years ago. Hence, at the age of 17 or 18, I was both a snob and a revolutionary. I was against all authority. I had read and reread the entire works of Shaw, Wells, Goldsworthy, at the time still regarded as dangerously advanced writers. And I loosely described myself as a socialist. But I had not much grasp of the socialism meant, or what it meant, and no motion of the working class were human beings. At a distance, and through the medium of books, Jack London's The People of the Abyss, for instance, I could agonise over their sufferings, but I still hated them and despised them when I came anywhere near them. I was still revolted by their accent and infuriated by their habitual rudeness. One must remember that just then, immediately after the war, the English working class were in a fighting mood. 
That was the period of the great coal strikes, when a miner was thought of as a friend incarnate, and old ladies looked under their beds every night lest Robbie Smilly should be concealed there. All through the war, and for a little time afterwards, there had been high wages and abundant employment. Things were now returning to something worse than normal, and naturally the working class resisted. The men who had fought had been lured into the army by gaudy promises, and now they were coming home to a world where there were no jobs and not even any houses. Moreover, they had been at war and were coming home with the soldier's attitude to life, which is, fundamentally, in spite of discipline, a lawless attitude. There was a turbulent feeling in the air, and to that time belongs the song with a memorable refrain. There's nothing sure but the rich get richer and the poor get children. In the meantime, in between time, ain't we got fun? People had not yet settled down to a lifetime of unemployment, mitigated by endless cups of tea. They still vaguely expected the utopia of which they'd fought, and even more than before they were openly hostile to the aching pronouncing class. So, to the shock absorbers of the bourgeoisie such as myself, common people still appeared brutal and repulsive. Looking back upon that period, I seem to have spent half the time in denouncing the capitalist system, and the other half in raging over the insolence of bus conductors. When I was not yet twenty, I went to Burma, in the Indian Imperial Police. In an outpost of empire like Burma, the class question appeared at first sight to have been shelved. There was no obvious class friction here, because the all-important thing was not whether you had been to one of the right schools, but whether your skin was technically white. As a matter of fact, most of the white men in Burma were not of the type who in England would have been called gentlemen, but except for the common soldiers and a few nondescripts, they lived lives appropriate to gentlemen, had servants, that is, and called their evening meal dinner, and, officially, they were regarded as being all of the same class. They were white men, in contradistinction to the other and inferior class, the natives. But one did not feel towards the natives as one felt towards the lower classes at home. The essential point was that the natives, at any rate, the Burmese, were not felt to be physically repulsive. One looked down on them as natives, but one could quite readily be physically intimate with them. And this, I noticed, was the case even with white men who had the most vicious colour prejudice. When you have a lot of servants, you soon get into lazy habits, and I habitually allowed myself, for instance, to be dressed and undressed by my Burmese boy. This was because he was a Burmese, and undisgusting. I could not have endured to let an English manservant handle me in that intimate manner. I felt towards a Burman almost as I felt towards a woman. Like most other races, the Burmese have a distinctive smell. I cannot describe it as a smell that makes one's teeth tingle, but this smell never disgusted me. Incidentally, Orientals say that 
we smell. The Chinese, I believe, said the white man smells like a corpse. The Burmese say the same, though no Burman was ever rude enough to say so to me. And, in a way, my attitude was defensible, for if one faces facts, one must admit that most Mongolians have much nicer bodies than most white men. Compare the firm, knit, silken skin of the Burman, which does not wrinkle at all till he's past forty, and then merely withers up like a piece of dry leather with the coarse-grained, flabby, sagging skin of the white man. The white man has lank, ugly hair growing down his legs and the back of his arms, and an ugly patch on his chest. The Burman has only a tuft or two of stiff, black-white hair in the appropriate places. For the rest he is quite hairless and is usually beardless as well. The white man almost always goes bald, and the Burman seldom or never. The Burman's teeth are perfect, though generally discoloured by beetle juice. The white man's teeth invariably decay. The white man is generally ill-shaped, and when he grows fat, he bulges in improbable places. The Mongol has beautiful bones, and at old age he is almost as shapely as in youth. Admittedly, the white races throw up a few individuals who, for a few years, are supremely beautiful, but on the whole, say what you will, they are far less comely than Orientals. But it was not of this that I was thinking when I found the English lower classes so much more repellent than Burmese natives. I was still thinking in terms of my early acquired class prejudice. When I was not much past twenty, I was attached for a short time to a British regiment. Of course, I admired and I liked the private soldiers, as any youth of twenty would admire, like hefty, cheering youths five years older than himself, with the medals of the Great War on their chests, and yet, after all, they faintly repelled me. They were common people, and I did not care to be too close to them. In the hot mornings, when the company marched down the road, myself in the rear with one of the junior subalterns, the stream of those hundred of sweating bodies in front just made my stomach turn. And this, you observe, was pure prejudice. For a soldier is probably as inoffensive physically as it is possible for a male white person to be. He's generally young, he's nearly always healthy from fresh air and exercise, and the rigorous discipline compels him to be clean. But I couldn't see it like that. All I knew was that this was a lower-class sweat that I was smelling, and the thought of it made me sick. When later on I got rid of my class prejudice, or part of it, it was in a roundabout way, and by a process that took several years. The thing that changed my attitude to the class issue was something only indirectly connected with it, something uh, almost irrelevant. I was in the Indian police five years, and by the end of that time I hated the imperialism that I was serving with a bitterness which I probably cannot make clear. In the free air of England, the king of thing, the kind of thing was not fully intelligible. In order to hate imperialism, you've got to be part of it. Seen from the outside, the British rule in India appears, indeed it is, benevolent, 
and even necessary. And so no doubt of the French rule in Morocco and the Dutch rule in Borneo, for people usually govern foreigners better than they govern themselves. But it is not possible to be part of such a system without recognising it as an unjustifiable tyranny. Even the thicker-skinned Anglo-Indian is aware of this. Every native face he sees in the street brings home to him his monstrous intrusion. And the majority of the Anglo-Indians, intermittently at least, are not nearly so complacent about their position as people in England believe. From the most unexpected people, from gin-pickled old scoundrels high up in the government service, I've heard some such remark as, Of course, we've no right in this blasted country at all. Only now that we're here, for God's sake, let's stay here. The truth is that no modern man in his heart of hearts believes that it is right to invade a foreign country and hold the population down by force. Foreign oppression is a much more obvious, understandable evil than economic oppression. And thus, in England, we tamely admit to being robbed in order to keep half a million worth idlers in luxury. But we would fight to the last man sooner than be ruled by Chinamen. Similarly, people who live on unearned dividends without a single qualm of conscience see clearly enough that it is wrong to go and lord it in a foreign country where you're not wanted. The result is that every Anglo-Indian is haunted by a sense of guilt, which he usually conceals as best he can, because there is no freedom of speech, and merely to be overheard making a seditious remark may damage his career. All over India there are Englishmen who secretly loathe the system of which they are a part, and just occasionally, when they are quite certain of being in the right company, their hidden bitterness overflows. I remember a night that I spent on a train with a man in the education service, a stranger to myself whose name I never discovered. It was too hot to sleep, and we spent the night in talking. Half an hour's cautious questioning decided that each of us was the other was safe, and then for hours while the train jolted slowly through the pitch-black night, sitting up on our bunks with bottles of beer handy, we damned the British Empire, damned it from the inside, intelligently and intimately. It did us both good. But we had been speaking forbidden things, and in the haggard morning light when the train crawled into Mandalay, we parted as guiltily as any adulterous couple. So far as my observation goes, nearly all Anglo-Indian officials have moments when their conscience troubles them. The exceptions are men who are doing something which is demonstrably useful, and would still have to be done whether the British were in India or not. Forest officers, for instance, and doctors and engineers, that kind of thing. But... I was in the police, which is to say that I was part of the actual machinery of despotism. Moreover, in the police you see the dirty work of empire at close quarters. And there is an appreciable difference between doing dirty work and merely profiting by it. Most people approve of capital punishment, but most people wouldn't do the hangman's job. 
Even the other Europeans in Burma slightly looked down on the police because of the brutal work which they had to do. I remember once when I was inspecting a police station, an American missionary whom I knew fairly well came in for some purpose or other. Unlike most non-conformist missionaries, he was a complete ass, but quite a good fellow. One of my native sub-inspectors was bullying a suspect. I described this scene in Burma days. The American watched it and then, turning to me, said thoughtfully, I wouldn't care to have your job. It made me horribly ashamed. So, that was the kind of job I had. Even an ass of an American missionary, a teetotal cock virgin from the Middle East, had the right to look down on me and pity me. But I should have felt the same shame even if there had been no one to bring it home to me. I had begun to have an incredibly indescribable loathing of the whole machinery of so-called justice. Say what you will, our criminal law, far more humane, by the way, than in India than in uh, England, is a horrible thing. It needs very insensitive people to administer it. The wretched prisoners squatting in the reeking cages of the lockups, the grey cowed faces of the long-term convicts, the scarred buttocks of the men who have been flogged with bamboos, the women and children howling when their menfolk were led away under arrest. Things like these are beyond bearing when you are in any way directly responsible for them. I watched a man hanged once. It seemed to me worse than a thousand murders. I never went into a jail without feeling, and most visitors to jails feel the same, that my place is on the other side of the bars, and I thought then, and I think now, for that matter, that the worst criminal who ever walked is morally superior to a hanging judge. But, of course, I had to keep these notions to myself because of the most utter silence that is imposed on every Englishman in the East. In the end, I worked out an anarchistic theory that all government is evil, that the punishment always does more harm than the crime, and that people can be trusted to behave decently only if you let them alone. This, of course, was sentimental nonsense, and I see now, as I did not see then, that it is always necessary to protect peaceful people from violence. In any state of society where crime can be profitable, you've got to have a harsh criminal law and administer it ruthlessly. The alternative is Al Capone. But the feeling that punishment is evil arises inescapably in those who have to administer it. I should expect to find that even in England, many policemen, judges, prison warders and the like are haunted by a secret horror of what they do. But in Burma, it was a double oppression that we were committing. Not only were we hanging people and putting them in jail and so forth, we were doing it in the capacity of unwanted foreign invaders. The Burmese themselves never really recognised our jurisdiction. The thief who we put in prison did not think of himself as a criminal justly punished. He thought of himself as the victim of a foreign conqueror. The thing was being done to him was merely a wanton, meaningless cruelty. 
His face behind the stout teak bars of the lockup and the iron bars of the jail said it clearly. And unfortunately, I had not trained myself to be indifferent to the expression of the human face. When I came home on leave in 1927, I was already half determined to throw up my job, and one sniff of English air decided me. I was not going back to be part of that evil despotism. But I wanted much more than merely to escape from my job. For five years I'd been part of an oppressive system. It had left me with a bad conscience. Innumerable remembered faces, faces of prisoners in the dock, of men waiting in the condemned cells, of subordinates I'd bullied and aged peasants which I'd snubbed, of servants and coolies which I had hit with my fist in a moment of rage. Nearly everyone does these things in the East, at any rate occasionally. Orientals can be very provoking. It haunted me intolerably. I was conscious of an immense weight of guilt which I had just got to expiate. I suppose that sounds exaggerated, but if you do for five years a job that you thoroughly disapprove of, you will probably feel the same. I had reduced everything to the simple theory that the oppressed are always right and the oppressors are always wrong. A mistaken theory, but the natural result of being one of the oppressors yourself. I felt that I had got to escape not merely from imperialism, but from every form of man's domination over man. I wanted to submerge myself, to get right down amongst the oppressed, to be one of them and on their side against the tyrants, and chiefly because I had to think everything out in solitude. I carried my hatred of oppression to extraordinary lengths. At that time, failure seemed to me to be the only virtue. Every suspicion of self-advancement, even to succeed in life to the extent of making a few hundred a year, seemed to me spiritually ugly and a species of bullying. It was in this way that my thoughts turned towards the English working class. It was the first time that I have ever been really aware of the working class, and to begin with, it was only because they supplied an analogy. They were the symbolic victims of injustice, playing the same part in England as the Burmese played in Burma. In Burma, the issue had been quite simple. The whites were up and the blacks were down, and therefore, as a matter of course, one's sympathy was with the blacks. I now realise that there was no need to go as far as Burma to find tyranny and exploitation. Here in England, down under one's feet, there submerged working class, suffering miseries, which, in their different way, were as bad as any Oriental ever knows. The word unemployment was on everyone's lips. That was more or less new to me after Burma, but the drivel which the middle classes were still talking these unemployed are all unemployables, etc., etc. They failed to deceive me. I often wondered whether that kind of stuff deceives even the fools who uttered it. On the other hand, I had at that time no interest in socialism or any other economic theory. 
It seemed to me then, and sometimes seems to me now for that matter, that economic injustice will stop the moment that we want it to stop, and no sooner. And if we genuinely wanted it to stop, the method adopted, well, it hardly mattered. But I knew nothing about working-class conditions. I'd read the unemployment figures, but I had no notion of what they implied, and above all I did not know the essential fact that respectable poverty is always the worst. The frightful doom of a decent working man suddenly thrown onto the streets after a lifetime of steady work, his agonised struggles against economic laws which he does not understand, the disintegration of families, the corroding sense of shame, all of this was outside the range of my experience. When I thought of poverty, I thought of it in terms of brute starvation, and therefore my mind turned immediately towards the extreme cases, the social outcasts, the tramps, beggars, criminals, prostitutes. These were the lowest of the low, and these were the people with whom I wanted to get in contact. What I profoundly wanted at that time was to find some way out of getting of, uh, out of the respectable world altogether. I meditated upon it a great deal. I even planned parts of it in detail, how one could sell everything, give everything away, change one's name and start out with no money and nothing but the clothes one stood up in. But in real life, nobody ever does that kind of thing. Apart from the relatives and friends who have to be considered, it's doubtful whether an educated man could do it if there were any other course open to him. But at least I could go amongst these people and see what their lives were like and feel myself temporarily part of their world. Once I'd been among them and accepted by them, I should have touched bottom, and, and this is where I felt, I was even... I was aware even then that it was irrational, that part of my guilt would then drop from me, I thought. I thought it over, and I decided what I would do. I would go suitably disguised to Limehouse and Whitechapel and such places, and sleep in common lodging houses and pal up with dock labourers and street hawkers and derelict people and beggars and and if possible criminals. And I would find out about tramps and how you got in touch with them and what was the proper procedure for entering the casual ward. And then, when I felt that I knew the ropes well enough, I'd go on the road myself. At the start, it wasn't easy. I meant masquerading and I have no talent for acting. I cannot, for instance, disguise my accent. At any rate, not for more than a few minutes. I imagined, most of the frightful class consciousness of the Englishman, that I should be spotted as a gentleman. But, at the moment I opened up my mouth, but I had a hard luck story ready, just in case I should be questioned. I got hold of the right kind of clothes, <coughs> and I dirtied them in appropriate places. I am a difficult person to disguise, being abnormally tall, but... I did at least know what a tramp looks like. How few people do know this, by the way. Look at any picture for a tramp in Punch. They're always twenty years out of date. One evening, having made ready at a friend's house, I set out and wandered 
eastward till I landed up at a common lodging house in Limehouse Causeway. It was a dark and dirty-looking place. I knew it was a common lodging house by the sign Good Beds for Single Men in the window. Heavens! How I had to screw up my courage before I went in. (laughs) Seems ridiculous now. But you see, I was still half afraid of the working class. I wanted to be in touch with them. I even wanted to become one of them. But I still thought of them as alien and dangerous. Going into the dark doorway of that common lodging house seemed to me like going down into some dreadful subterranean place, a sewer full of rats, for instance. I went in fully expecting a fight. The people would spot that I was not one of them myself and immediately infer that I had come to spy on them, and then they would set upon me and throw me out. That's what I expected. I felt that I had got to do it, though, but I did not enjoy the prospect. Inside the door, a man in shirt-sleeves appeared from somewhere or other. This was the deputy, and I told him that I wanted a bed for the night. My accent did not make him stare, I noticed. He merely demanded ninepence, and showed me the way to a frowsy, firelit kitchen underground. There were stevedores and navvies, and a few sailors sitting about and playing draughts and drinking tea. They barely glanced at me as I entered, but this was Saturday night, and a hefty young stevedore was drunk and was reeling about the room. He turned, saw me, and lurched towards me with a broad red face thrust out and a dangerous-looking fishy gleam in his eyes. I stiffened myself. So the fight was coming already. The next moment the stevedore collapsed on my chest and flung his arms round my neck. Have a cup of tea, chum, he cried tearfully. Have a cup of tea. I had a cup of tea. It was a kind of baptism. After that, my fears vanished. Nobody questioned me. Nobody showed offensive curiosity. Everybody was polite and gentle and took me utterly for granted. I stayed two or three days in that common lodging house, and a few weeks later, having picked up a certain amount of information about the habits of destitute people, I went on the road for the first time. I have described it all in this down-and-out in Paris and London, and nearly all the incidents described there actually happened, though they have been rearranged. And I do not want to repeat it. Later, I went on the road for much longer periods, sometimes from choice and sometimes from necessity. I have lived in common lodging houses for months together. But it is that first expedition that sits most vividly in my mind, because of the strangeness of it, the strangeness of being at least last down there amongst the lowest of the low, and on terms of utter equality with working-class people. A tramp, it's true, is not a typical working-class person, and still, when you're amongst tramps, you are at any rate merged in one section, one subcast of the working-class, a thing which so far as I know, can happen to you in no other way. For several days I wandered through the northern outskirts of London with an Irish tramp. I was his mate, temporarily. 
We shared the same cell at night, and he told me the history of his life, and I told him a fictitious history of mine. We took in turns to beg at likely-looking houses, and divided up the proceeds. I was very happy. Here I was, amongst the lowest of the low, at the bedrock of the Western world. The class bar was down, or seemed to be down, and down there in the squalid and, as a matter of fact, horribly boring sub-world of the tramp, I had a feeling of release, of adventure, which seemed absurd when I look back, but which was sufficiently vivid at the time.